0: In our passage this morning, Solomon now sits on the throne, vested with the full powers of the king of Israel, his father David having died after giving him a number of instructions that we considered in the previous passage. Solomon had already been anointed, he had been installed as king, but King David, his father, still lived, and he was, in a sense, still in authority over Solomon. Now Solomon is on his own. And some of those instructions that David had given to Solomon found in the first part of chapter two, chapter 2 have to do with how Solomon should conduct himself as king in order to prosper under the hand of the Lord. And so David commanded him in the early verses of chapter 2, keep the charge of Yahweh your God, walking in his ways and keeping his statutes, his commandments, his rules, and his testimonies. And then David tells Solomon in verse 4 that if Solomon's sons pay close attention to their way, walking in faithfulness to the Lord, David, and by extension Solomon, would not lack a man on the throne of Israel. Following those initial instructions, however, David instructed Solomon to tie up some loose ends regarding men who had done harm to David and to Israel. Loose ends that David himself uh, should have taken care of. And you remember that we considered how even though those men deserved punishment, David likely wasn't purely motivated by a desire for justice, but that a personal vendetta was probably also behind his commands to Solomon to deal with Joab and Shimei. Well, our passage this morning contains the accounts of Solomon following up on his father's instructions. But first, he's got to deal with his older brother, Adonijah, who had tried to steal the throne from him and who once again was trying to put himself in in a position to take it. And what we see in our passage is that in some instances, justice is very swift, while in others, it takes years, which isn't so different from how God meets out justice in our day. Sometimes justice is very quick. Other times, it seems to take ages. And in an ultimate sense, justice won't fully be carried out until Judgment Day, until the day that Jesus Christ returns to judge the living and the dead. However, in the meantime, until that great day, God does use the institutions he has ordained to carry out justice in our day. As we work our way through the sermon this morning, I would ask you to consider this. For Solomon, carrying out justice helped secure the kingdom of israel king jesus has always ensured justice for the building up of his kingdom again king solomon carried out justice to help secure the kingdom of israel but king jesus has always ensured justice for the building up of his kingdom the sermon is divided into three sections the first section second attempt the second section, justice promotes peace. And the third section, God is most just. Again, second, second attempt is the first section. The second section, justice promotes peace. The third section, God is most just. So let's look at the, this first part of the sermon today, second attempt. The first part of our passage deals with Adonijah making what appears to be a second attempt at gaining the throne of Israel. That's certainly how Solomon understands it. And there's really real, little reason to doubt Solomon's interpretation of Adonijah's actions. In verses 13 and following, Adonijah approaches, approaches Bathsheba, and he asks her to go to her son to request of him that he give Adonijah Abishag the Shunammite to be his wife. Now the fact that, that Adonijah goes to Bathsheba, it indicates uh, that she had a measure, measure of influence over Solomon as queen mother. Or at least that she was viewed that way. The way that, that Solomon receives her into uh, his throne room. He bows down to her. He, he gives her a seat to sit beside him uh, at the right hand of, of himself. But as the favorite wife of King David, whose son was now on the throne, the view that, that, that Adonijah had is probably correct. Bathsheba did have a certain amount of influence over her son. And given that Adonijah had attempted to prevent Solomon from becoming king by taking the throne for himself, he must have thought that it was a safer approach to ask Bathsheba to go to Solomon on his behalf. As you read this passage, it's hard to imagine that Bathsheba is unaware of what Solomon's reaction would be to his half-brother's request to be given Abishag as his wife. Abishag, you remember, was the young woman who was brought to David at the beginning of 1 Kings chapter 1. When David was so cold he couldn't get warm, they found a young woman uh, to come to him to be, uh, enter into his bed with him. Abishag became his wife. And as Dale Davis puts it, obtaining a previous king's wife was tantamount to claiming that king's position. Bathsheba would have known this. So as she agreed to Adonijah's request, she knew that he was asking for the rope that would hang himself. When Bathsheba presents Adonijah's request to Solomon, he is outraged at the audacity of Adonijah. He says to his mother in verse 22, And why do you ask Abishag the Shunammite for Adonijah? Ask for him the kingdom also, for he is my older brother. And on his side are Abiathar the priest and Joab the son of Zeruiah. Solomon knows that if he were to grant his brother's request, it was conceivable that Adonijah would lay claim to his father's throne, using his father's former wife, who would now be his own, as proof that he was the rightful heir to the throne. And he probably would have Abiathar the priest on on one side and Joab on the other. Solomon's scheme-detecting radar is blaring at him. He knows that something is afoot, and he takes decisive action to deal with it. that brings us to the second part of the sermon. Justice promotes peace. peace. His actions dealing with the threat that Adonijah posed begin in verse 23 when he says to Bathsheba, God do so to me and more also if this word does not cost Adonijah his life. The threat... To Solomon involves not only Adonijah but the two men he just mentioned to his mother in verse 22, Abiathar the priest and Joab the son of Zeruiah. These men had been intimately involved in Adonijah's insurrection against David in chapter one. And though David hadn't given Solomon any instructions regarding Abiathar, Solomon had not yet dealt with Joab according to his father's commands in the previous passage. But the three of them, being alive and still in Jerusalem together, posed a serious threat to Solomon's position as king. Solomon deals with Adonijah first. He sends Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, to kill Adonijah. And verse 25 simply says that Benaiah struck Adonijah down and he died. Adonijah's done. His life is over. In verses 26 and 27, he deals with the priest Abiathar. He does not have him killed. He does, however, send him to his estate in Anathoth, which was a little less than five miles away from Jerusalem, and he expelled him from the priesthood. Abiathar has no, no longer has any influence uh, religiously over the people of Israel. And Sol- Solomon's reason for not having Abiathar executed, though he said in verse 26 that he deserved it, was because he carried the ark of the Lord before his father David when it was being brought into Jerusalem but also because he suffered alongside David. Abiathar was there when David was being pursued by Saul. He had been with David for decades. That betrayal, on the one hand, deserved death, but on the other, his loyalty to David is what prevented Solomon from having him executed. And in banishing Abiathar from the priesthood, the word of the Lord in 1 Samuel 2, chapter 30... uh, 1 Samuel chapter 2, verses 30 to 33, was fulfilled when the Lord told Eli the priest that his house would be cut off from the priesthood. Abiathar was the last of that line. Next up in the line for justice was Joab, who when he heard what happened to Adonijah and Abiathar, knew that his days were numbered. He tore a page from Adonijah's playbook. He quickly made his way to the altar in the tabernacle. He grabbed hold of the, the horns on the altar, which meant that like Adonijah, he had climbed up on the altar to do so. And Solomon sent Benaiah to execute Joab. When Benaiah commanded Joab to come out of the tabernacle, Joab refused. He said in verse 30, No, I will die here. Joab was probably assuming that Solomon re- would regard an execution on the altar as a defilement of the, t- of the, of the tabernacle, of the altar. But instead, Solomon told Benaiah in verse 31, do as he, had, as he has said, strike him down and bury him, and thus take away from me and from my father's house the guilt for the blood Joab shed without cause. Solomon goes on in verses 32 to 33 to expand upon his rationale for having Joab executed when, uh, then and there, reminding all who were present of Joab's savage killing of the two men without the permission of, uh, or knowledge of David. In other words, this was a long time in coming. So if Joab wanted to be killed on the altar in the tabernacle, so be it. Just before Benaiah goes back to the tabernacle to carry out the king's command, Solomon says in verse 33, So shall their blood come back on the head of Joab and on the, house, uh, on the head of his descendants forever. But for David and for his descendants and for his house and for his throne, there shall be peace from Yahweh forevermore. In verse 34, Beniah went and struck down Joab, and Joab was buried in his own house in the wilderness. After this, we read that Solomon put Beniah in Joab's place over the armory of Israel, and Zadok in Abiathar's place as high priest. The last section of the passage deals with justice being done to Shimei. David had told Solomon in verse 9, Now therefore do not hold him guiltless, for you are a wise man. You will know what you ought to do with him, and you shall bring his gray head down with blood to Sheol. First, Solomon deals mercifully with Shimei. He tells him in verse 36, build for yourself a house in Jerusalem and dwell there. And do not go out from there to any place whatever. And he goes on to tell Shimei that on the day that he leaves his house and crosses the brook of Kidron, he will die. Now, Shimei behaved well for a while. But after three years, two of his servants ran away to Gath, and Shimei followed after them. He brought them back. And Solomon was told that Shimei had disobeyed his orders. And he summoned Shimei to come before him. He reminded Shimei that he had sworn to Solomon not to leave his kingdom, leave his house on pain of death, and of all the pain that he had caused to his father David. And then he ordered Benaiah to kill Shimei. And the last sentence in our passage reads, So the kingdom was established in the hand of Solomon. Now, Dale Davis, in his commentary, mentions the fact that some scholars view Solomon in an extremely negative light here. They say that he's only acting out of self-interest and a desire for revenge. We know enough about human nature. The Bible teaches enough about human nature. We know that Solomon's motives for having these men killed, having Abiathar uh, 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 banished from the temple, we know that, that, that there was a mixture of good and bad motive here. We understand that. That doesn't make what Solomon did evil. It doesn't make it wrong. As king of Israel, Solomon is also Israel's supreme judge. And while it might appear that he is only looking after his own interests and having these men executed or exiled, the fact is that they all had committed crimes that were deserving of death. They all had done things that, that would destabilize the kingdom. And David had quite simply failed in carrying out swift justice. There's a saying that that it's overused, I think it's often derided, but it is nonetheless true. No justice, no peace. And Solomon understands this. He understands that without justice, without bringing down justice upon those who deserve justice, there will be no peace. Now, that phrase, that slogan is misused today, isn't it? Oftentimes it is. People get upset. Things happen. The authorities do things that that people don't like, and, and they shout no justice, no peace, and they burn buildings down. They destroy cities. That's a, a misuse of the truth that is contained within that saying. Solomon knows that if the type of behavior these men have engaged in is allowed to continue, the kingdom of peace that he was supposed to usher in would be destroyed. The government of a nation has an obligation to carry out justice on behalf of its people. And in this case, Solomon has a personal interest in what these men have done. But what they did required the type of justice that Solomon commanded to be done. Solomon was in the position of being the head of a theocratic state. A nation that was both civil and religious at the same time. There was no separation of church and state in Israel in Solomon's day. The church was the state and the state the church. So when a person committed a civil crime... Such as what Joab had done, Solomon had the authority to sentence him to death. And when someone committed a religious sin, like the way that Shimei had cursed David, Solomon had the authority to put him to death. The deaths of these men, Joab and Shimei, they bring to a close the story of David. Because they are the last threads of the story to be tied up. The few things that David should have taken care of in his life, but instead he left to his son. And so in a sense, the book of David is now closed. And that brings us to the third and the final point of our sermon today. God is most just. Now in Israel, to sin was to commit a crime. And these men had committed sins that were worthy of the death penalty. They committed crimes that were worthy of the death penalty. Solomon, as king of this church state, possessed the power of the sword to carry out justice. That ended with the demise of the Old Testament nation of Israel, just as the various judicial laws that God gave to Israel had expired, so the civil laws that God had given to the nation of Israel expired. In our country, as in most countries around the world, sin does not necessarily equal crime. There may be some overlap, such as with the the crime of murder, which is also a sin, isn't it? In our day, the civil authority of our nation does not have the power to enforce religious laws such as days of worship. And that's that's a good thing. What would happen if the the, the predominant religion of our nation shifted? If we were, uh, in a sense, uh, controlled by the dominant religion of the day, and it shifted from Christianity to Islam? The day of worship most certainly would shift. That's not something that we want as a nation, I don't believe. After the demise of Old Testament Israel, the civil authorities define what crime is and carry out punishments on those who commit crimes. The civil government has the power of the sword, as Paul mentions in Romans chapter 13, verse 4, saying that a civil ruler does not bear the sword in vain. In fact, Paul A Roman citizen who wrote the book of Romans during the reign of Nero commends the civil authorities as God's servants for our good, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. The church, however, does not have that authority. Church power, as our book of church order puts it, is ministerial and declarative, meaning simply that the church does not have authority to physically punish or imprison someone this is the basis for the doctrine that's known as the spirituality of the church, which, as Alan Strange writes, is a doctrine that emphasized the differing spheres of church and state, highlighting that the calling of the church was chiefly spiritual, the task of gathering and perfecting the saints. But why are we talking about this in the first place? Why are we, why are we here? Because God is most just. In the words of the Westminster Confession of Faith and Catechisms, his, he is perfect in his justice. And the agent on earth that carries out God's justice for crimes committed is not the church. <clears throat> Instead, it is the civil authorities which, as Paul puts it, are instituted by God. Now, F.F. Bruce writes this regarding this passage in Romans 13, God is the fount of all authority, and those who exercise authority on earth do so by delegation from him. Therefore, to disobey them is to disobey God. That doesn't sit well with most people. Not, not Not in our day, not in this time. To disobey their authority is to disobey God. Now, that's one man's take on things, and F.F. Bruce was no dummy, but he's he's just a man, right? We've been taught, at least since the 1960s, to question authority, to distrust those who are in power, and to be quite honest, our leaders haven't done much to earn our trust, have they? Quite the opposite, in fact. They are probably deserving, (laughs) in many ways, of the derision that is heaped upon them. But Paul writes in Romans chapter 13, verse 2, Whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur incur judgment. We cannot dismiss this verse by saying that Paul must have been living in a utopia. It was quite the opposite, wasn't it? He was living under Nero. Things are only going to get worse for Christians. However, just as the officers of the church are not infallible, just as they make mistakes, do things that are wrong, neither are the officers of the state. And Oscar Coleman writes, few sayings in the New Testament have suffered as much misuse as this one. Meaning, if you resist the authorities, you're resisting God. And according to Bruce, Coleman thinks especially of its misuse in justifying uncritical submission to the dictates of totalitarian governments. Because governments are made up of human beings, they will inevitably inevitably make mistakes. There will be abuses of power and corruption within the ranks of governments. And so there are limits to civil uh, Christian obedience to the laws of the civil magistrate. When the laws of civil government conflict with God's commandments, we are obliged to follow the example found in Acts 5.29. We must obey God rather than men. And living under the type of government we have in this country, we have the right and even the obligation to call our leaders to account when necessary. When we see a misuse of the power of the sword by the authorities, for instance, when we see blatant police brutality, we need to seek justice. We need to call the authorities to account because God is just. But... As Bruce writes in his commentary on Romans, Christians will voice their no to Caesar's unauthorized demands the more effectively if they have shown themselves ready to say yes to his authorized demands. That's part of what it means to be a good citizen of the nation in which our citizenship is held. But again, why? Why should we be concerned about all of this? It's because we want the church, which is the visible manifestation of the kingdom of God here on earth, to flourish. And when the governments of this world understand that the church is not a threat to them, that we aren't in competition with the civil magistrate, they may just change their laws to be less restrictive to the church. If we show ourselves to be good citizens of the nation in which we find ourselves, the government will see that we're not a threat. Now, what do we do about totalitarian governments? How do we understand how Christians should live, say, in, in a place like North Korea? What do we do? It's very different. It's, it's so different to us that we can scarcely imagine living in a land like North Korea, living in a, in, a, in a predominantly Muslim land in which Christianity is completely outlawed. How do we live? How do Christians live in those places? Acts 5.29 Acts 5.29 Obey the leadership, obey the civil authority in every way that you can. But ultimately, you must obey the law of God rather than the law of man. If those two laws find themselves in conflict with one another, you still have to obey the law of God. You still have to obey the law of God. And it's difficult. It's not easy. But we find ourselves in a similar situation today. There are times where we have to take a stand The law of God demands it. There are other times where we show our our, our unfettered support for the government of our land. As the Heidelberg Catechism says, God has ordained that all things must work together for my salvation. And ultimately, even the civil governments of this earth are under the authority of King Jesus. They have been instituted by him so that there should be peace from the Lord forevermore. But true peace... Eternal peace, it does not come from the civil magistrate. The civil magistrate can promote peace. The civil magistrate can help set the conditions for peace where the church can flourish, where the gospel can be proclaimed, where sinners can hear the the name of Jesus Christ and call out for him, call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. But true peace does not come from the civil magistrate. If you want true peace, then you must know Jesus Christ. He is the one to whom Solomon pointed. Be thankful, brothers and sisters, that you live in a land where we are free. Where, for the most part, we are unfettered in our ability to gather together to worship the Lord. Be thankful for that freedom. But ultimately, your gratitude is to the Lord. Trust in Jesus. You will have peace with God. Because Jesus Christ suffered the justice from his Father that your sins deserved. Jesus Christ suffered his Father's justice so that you could be shown mercy. He endured the wrath of his Father that your sins, which are high crimes against your heavenly Father, the King of heaven, he endured that wrath, he endured that justice so that you could be at peace eternally. And that, brothers and sisters, is good news.